Hello, I am Dan Reno in San Francisco. And I'm Gemma Ware in London. Welcome to The Conversation Weekly. Dan, it's the Christmas season, lots of parties going on, but I'm pregnant, which is great, but it means I'm not going to be able to partake in any champagne, mulled wine, eggnog. It's a bit disappointing. Well, you're ahead of the curve, Gemma, right? Because come January 1st, everyone's like, I'm never drinking alcohol again. This is the year for health. And usually everyone's super hungover too. Except that that's when I'm going to have my alcohol because hopefully the baby will have arrived by then and I'll be sipping a a glass of champagne. But as I've been ordering non-alcoholic beers in the pub as my friends have a a lovely pint, I've been thinking a lot about alcohol. And I was really struck by this story that I saw recently about what's going on in Japan. They've actually launched a campaign to encourage more young people to drink alcohol. Wait, what? The government is trying to encourage young people to drink alcohol? But this is the opposite of what governments do. They don't want young people drinking. Well, Actually, they do because they raise quite a lot of money from the sale of alcohol. And it was the National Tax Agency that were actually behind this one. They wanted to boost Japan's economy. They're inviting people to propose business ideas to promote alcohol to young people. And so far, 300 people have submitted ideas for how to do this. And the government's going through this selection round this month to to choose a couple. So why aren't young people drinking all that much in Japan? Well, in Japan's case, it's linked to an aging demographic and also people's changing habits during the COVID pandemic. Um, But actually, while Japan's reaction to this might be pretty unique, trying to get more young people to drink, it's by no means the only country where young people are drinking less. In many high-income countries around the world, particularly in Europe and North America, there's been a marked decline over the past 10 to 15 years in the amount of alcohol young people drink. I've noticed this here in San Francisco. I've met a number of young people in their 20s and 30s over the last couple of years who don't drink. And it's not like they've struggled with alcohol addiction in the past or they have health issues. They just kind of prefer to go without and are cruising around and hanging out with the rest of us while we all destroy our livers. Yeah, I think this is really interesting. And actually, for this episode, I've decided to look into some interesting trends that are going on with youth drinking. So there have been some marked declines in how much people are drinking in some countries. And we're going to get into the reasons for that in this episode. But in some parts of the world, like Africa and Southeast Asia, the opposite is happening. Young people are drinking more than they used to. And I've been finding out what these different trends across the last few years and across different regions can actually tell us about the way young people see themselves and their place in the world. So to start, I called up Amy Pinay. She's a senior research fellow at the Centre for Alcohol Policy Research at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. And she studies alcohol and youth drinking in particular. While I was working at a drug treatment research organisation, an advertisement for a PhD appeared in the email to explore heavy drinking practices in the nighttime economy. So we're talking about 2003, 2004, and this resonated a lot with my current um, leisure practices. I was going out a lot, um, hitting the nightclubs, and because I had kind of an insider perspective to this situation, plus the alcohol and drug and criminology background, I thought this was a really nice way to bring together my passions and my discipline. And this was a time when alcohol and drug use was really peaking in terms of prevalence rates, both in Australia but other high-income countries like the UK, uh, young people really pursuing heavy intoxication and getting obliterated and annihilated on the weekends. So it was a really perfect time for that kind of work. 
So binge drinking. That's right. That's right. Weekend leisure time drinking amongst 18 to 24 year olds. It turns out that this very moment when Amy was hanging out in bars and nightclubs in Melbourne in the early 2000s was when youth drinking was actually peaking in a number of high income countries like Australia. There was a steady increase in the prevalence rates of alcohol and party drug use through the 90s and into the early 2000s. And then there was a very strong and heavy focus in policy and prevention on stemming the tide. And around 2003, 2004 was the peak in most countries. So from about 2003, there's been a very steady decrease. But we didn't notice it for a long time because it was so gradual But if you can now look over 15 years, it looks quite steep because we're seeing uh, levels below we've seen for a very, very long time. The first signs that youth drinking was declining emerged in North America and Scandinavia. And then it seemed to slowly network out to Western Europe and Australia and New Zealand. And there's been some decline in Southern Europe but much less sort of neat in terms of there's no, it goes up and down. It's not so linear. So are we talking about these 18 to 20 to kind of two, three-year-olds that you were studying or is it kind of the younger age groups? So the starkest decline is definitely in those under 18, but there is a flow-on effect in most high-income countries to 18 to 24-year-olds. And when we're talking about this kind of drinking, is it that same binge drinking you were studying in the early 2000s that's declining or is it that people are not drinking at all? So what we're seeing, especially I know the Australian data best, is that drinking in all forms is going down. Less people are drinking, so abstinence rates are rising. People are drinking less frequently and people are drinking less on an occasion when they do drink. What's so remarkable about this to researchers like Amy is that the decrease in drinking was very specific to young people. But it was so significant that it actually drove an overall decline in how much populations in these countries were drinking. If you drill down into the data, you can see how the trend is moving through different generations. There are some small declines now being observed in 20 and 30-year-olds but also some increases in the older age groups. So those that were drinking heavily as underage young people and as young adults have continued drinking more as they age. So if you were in that cohort in the early 2000s where you were binge drinking as a kind of a 18-year-old, you're going to keep drinking when you're in your late 30s, 40s? Especially women. Um, we're finding women in their 40s uh, and 50s. They're the cohort in Australia that are drinking more. Do we yet know what's happened to youth drinking in these high-income countries that have been experiencing the decline during the pandemic? We're really eager to get the next wave of population data in Australia. We know from convenience samples that young people drank a lot less during the pandemic, especially we had quite strict lockdowns in Australia. And while some groups were reported as drinking more, particularly people who were homeschooling and women uh, in their 30s and 40s, young people were drinking much less during the pandemic because their drinking tends to be more social. And so we're really keen to see what happens afterwards and and how that affects trends data. Um, I think we're all kind of waiting internationally as well. Now we need to get the next sort of wave of data to see what happens post-pandemic. Sweden was one of the first countries where researchers began to notice the decline in youth drinking. And a lot of work has been going on there to track how young people's relationship to alcohol might be changing over time. My name is Jonas Raninen and I'm a researcher at Karolinska Institutet in Stockholm, Sweden. 
Jonas has spent the last five years studying the drinking habits of young Swedes. Since 2017, uh, we initiated a longitudinal study where we're sort of following a generation born in 2001 and we'll be monitoring them across as they grow older. The researchers survey these young people once a year and also sit down to interview them to find out more about their relationship to alcohol. Today's adolescents are sort of historical in that there has never been so few that drink alcohol. And also among those that still drink, the levels of consumption are also at sort of an all-time low. In previous generations, young people aged around 15 or 16 who didn't drink may have been marginalised. But today's non-drinking adolescents don't seem to have much trouble socialising and making and keeping friends. And Jonas says that not drinking is actually improving other aspects of their lives. Non-drinkers are better off on a, a range of other areas. I mean, with mental health, their school situation, their family situation, stuff like that. Then we're also seeing among the drinkers that the ones that are drinking are doing that for, for sort of the same reasons that adolescents have always been drinking alcohol. What's called social or enhancement motives, hanging out with friends and stuff like that. But then also because it enhances good experiences. So we're not seeing any change in drinking motives, even though drinking is declining. And one of the things you found is that people are starting to drink a little bit later in Sweden. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. I would say that 17 is new 15. And this basically then tells us that the age of onset has been pushed upwards by the decline in youth drinking. So when we sort of looked at Swedish data, we do our major school surveys in year 9 and year 11, when they're 15-year-olds or when they're 17-year-olds. And today's 17-year-olds drink in a similar manner as 15-year-olds did in 2005 in Sweden. And this sort of general upwards push we're also seeing in other countries. So this is coming through from the US or Australia as well. And sort of at similar rates of a year and a half or two years that the age of onset has been pushed upwards. Jonas is also finding that those Swedish 15-year-olds who were drinking more five years ago are also drinking more as they get older. We're seeing that ones who, who started drinking earlier, they drink twice as much roughly later on. But this is also what we're seeing then sort of in general population surveys where we look at different cross sections at different time. And then we can see that sort of 18 to 24 year olds are also drinking less than what 18 to 24 year olds used to do. So it seems to be declining later on as well. Okay. In your data and in the data about this, is there a socioeconomic kind of factor? Like do people whose families or, or they have less money, are they more or less likely to be drinking younger? Do we know that? Drinking has a socioeconomic patterning, yes. I would say that there's a higher likelihood, at least in Sweden, to drink if you're uh, from an affluent background. Then the risk of having adverse consequences because of your drinking might be higher in lower socioeconomic groups. The trends in drinking, though, I would say are similar in all groups uh, across time. So it's not that richer kids are drinking more and less well-off kids are drinking less. It's just everyone's drinking a bit less. Yes, I would say. Dan, one of the things that I found quite interesting was understanding like how they get this data because I've been asked a couple of surveys in my life about how much I drink and I have to say I was... Fib a little. I don't quite tell the truth. <laughs> That's a good point. So how do they actually get accurate data? Because, I mean, surveys are just notoriously kind of bad. 
Yeah, well, researchers know that, right? They know that people will fib a little, but they also know that the amount people fib is roughly going to stay stable over time. And because of that, they can adjust their results to take that into account. Okay, so they might not know exactly how much you're drinking, but if drinking goes up, they can see that. Or if drinking goes down, they can see that. Exactly. And this quantitative type of data can help researchers spot trends in overall consumption of alcohol. But they also like to sit down with people and ask them what's going on. And this qualitative type of data can answer some questions about why young people are drinking less. Okay, so we've heard what the data shows. Young people are drinking less. But why? As Amy mentioned, the pandemic definitely had some effect. But This seems to be, as Jonas was showing, a larger trend that's not just related to individual events, but something bigger going on out in the world. There is something bigger going on, and researchers have identified four main reasons for what's going on in these countries. The first one is to do with changes in parenting. Parents are having less children, they're spending more time with the children that they have, they're communicating more openly, there's less authoritarian parenting and more kind of, you know, open kind of communication parenting. But there's also more surveillance. You know, I'll pick you up then or where are you, those sorts of things. So when I was young, you would say to your parent, I'm sleeping over at so-and-so's house and and that would be all until the next day. Mm. Whereas now it's text messages, there's Facebook, there's WhatsApp, there's find my phone, there's a whole range of things. Um, And parents are more concerned and more aware that they can't just let their children go out um, underage for 24 hours and they'll arrive home safely the next day. There's generally more concern. And did some of the young people mention that to you when you asked them? Yes, absolutely. My parents won't let me go out without picking me up. So I don't want to be drunk when they pick me up. Um, Mm. I can't get away with it. But also that leads into one of the other factors that comes up a lot, which is the technological side of things and the changes to leisure practices and the way people can socialise without actually being in the same physical space. Uh, And that comes up a lot in young people's um, narratives around, I spend my Saturday nights playing video games, but talking to my friends while I'm doing it, or we have a giant WhatsApp or or Snapchat group going for the evening because we've got exams on Monday rather than getting together. And and so in that in those situations, alcohol is just not as present. It's not just about kind of video games. Is it also about social media as well? Or what role does that play? Yeah, so um, the quantitative data hasn't been able to find a link between technology use and declining alcohol consumption, which I think is really interesting. But I think the point we've come to is an understanding that social media is something that everybody's using. So even though it may be important, it's not able to capture the declines because some people have declined, some people haven't, but everybody's using social media. So the qualitative data, though, points to it as quite important in the way particularly young people uh, navigate new romantic relationships. So alcohol has always been used to decrease inhibitions and online communication has a similar effect in that you're one step removed from that person so you can flirt and get to know each other without having to be slightly inebriated to get those conversations going. Amy and her colleagues are finding that another big reason for the decline in youth drinking is the way young people view alcohol and getting drunk. Young people are situating alcohol as a risky product in a way that previous generations weren't. So the data that I drew on in my PhD, young people very clearly talked about spending their weekends 
deliberately pursuing risk. I've spent my whole week laboring and I, I just need to turn all that off, pursue hedonism, get annihilated, have a great time, and that will rejuvenate me to come back on Monday and, you know, focus on my work. Mm. Young people seem far less, uh, young people today I mean, seem far less able to switch off their Monday to Friday on the weekend. And I do think part of that is enabled by mobile technologies where you're always reachable and, and therefore unable to switch off your email. But also young people seem to be far more worried about work and far more insecure about their futures. So there are more people going to university. There's more competition to get into university. There's more competition for skilled labour and everything's expensive. And unless you've got um, parents with money, uh, economic precarity is the young person's norm. So therefore, I can't really afford to spend my whole weekend switching off uh, getting drunk, having a great time because I need to spend my weekend either making money or carving out my CV, building it to a point where I'm more employable than the next person by volunteering or being on committees or proving my worth. What about for people who aren't working? So kind of the 16, 17 year olds who are at school, does that also come out in the conversations you've had with them? Absolutely. Yeah. So they would spend their weekend either studying, but a lot of them were working part-time and, and already saving, already worried about money. There seemed to be this pressure and worried about other things, broader social justice issues compared to previous generations. There seemed to be a lot more concern about volunteering and doing better and helping the planet or helping particular causes. I know you've written a paper where you say that young people don't have time for time out. This is the trend you're identifying here, is it? That's right. So yes, a really excellent paper by one of my PhD students where young people talked about using their free time as either being productive, that is adding to the CV, or free time as being opportunistic, like I'm going to fit my socialising in between walking from one class to another or between work and volunteering, and that is via online communication. Or free time is restorative. I'm so burnt out by all of the extracurriculars I'm doing and all of my work that I'm going to spend the day watching Netflix instead of getting drunk because that's what my body needs. What have the young people you've been talking to actually been saying about this issue of their worries about the future? So one of our participants, Frankie, she's 19, she said, if you are drinking, well, then that's going to impact your career and that's going to lead to mental health problems. And so therefore, I don't want to throw away my future for a couple of years of drinking. That point about mental health seems really crucial here because we've talked about parenting, about technology, about changes to young people's leisure time. But how much of a factor is health, including mental health? Yeah, so the health, health is a really big one. And what we're finding is that objectively, young people don't seem to be healthier in terms of nutrition, diet, obesity, those seem to be fairly stable. But young people talk about fitness and well-being and mental health a lot. Young people have always been aware of the shorter term health problems from drinking, whether that be embarrassment, shame, regret, injury, you know, those sorts of things that happens on a big night out, driving and, and those sorts of, you know, one night out can ruin your life. That's always been there. But the I'm worried about addiction or long-term mental health problems, 
cancer, liver cirrhosis, those sorts of things, brain development, um, those sorts of things are coming out really strongly. But also things around calories and fitness and well-being is coming out as well. So health is couched as both things I want to avoid happening, but also things that I'm pursuing, like my fitness and my well-being. And and that comes from sort of, I think, a lot from online, you know, wellness kind of movements. And what are some of the young people actually saying to you about health as an issue that they're worried about? So um, Mark said, I don't want to get to a point where it's like I drank so much in my 20s that I've now got lifelong health problems. And how old was Mark? Mark was 20. And I think these are really things that we don't remember seeing in the literature from 20 years ago. It was more about let's be in the moment. Let's pursue happiness and well-being in the moment. Whereas young people now are worried about their health in, in 30 or 40 years which I think is just another concern, something else in the back of their mind that they're worried about. Over the past few decades, government policy towards alcohol consumption hasn't remained static. But Amy says those changes can't fully explain the changes to youth drinking. I think what we can sort of safely say with regards to policy is there have been changes in different countries and different states, but this trend is global and it's consistent And so we can't account it to one policy. What we can say about policy is that when it was peaking drinking for young people in the early 2000s, there was more media attention, there was more politicians talking about alcohol as a problem amongst young people, and that can have flow-on effects to the media and how much they report, to parents and how much they think about it. And there has been an increase in scientific evidence and the dissemination of that evidence. So it's really hard to evaluate statistically whether that's had an effect on the community generally. But we couldn't rule out kind of increased attention and focus on alcohol as a factor. So of all these kind of interviews you've been doing and looking at this data, what's really surprised you? I think the thing that surprises me most as someone who has interviewed young people who think alcohol and party drug use is really important to their social identity and their leisure time is how much that is the opposite now in terms of the way alcohol is almost demonised. It's uncool. It's something my parents did. It's something me and my friends have no time for. In fact, we laugh at the people doing it, like why are you ruining your life? There's a lot of talk about addiction. So it's really alcohol has become for young people in my talkings with them uh, as something that's gone from, you know, extremely valorised and a reward and pursued to something that's really avoided and pathologised. So it's kind of an inverse of the pressure that young people were facing in the early 2000s where, you know, if you didn't go out binge drinking, you were seen as kind of the odd one out, whereas now it's almost the opposite. Especially with underage young people, that is definitely what I'm finding. One of Amy's main conclusions is that the decline in youth drinking that she's been observing is a symptom of a wider trend. I think young people's trajectories into adulthood have changed substantially and alcohol and drug use are just a side part of that. So they're less risky in general. Their health doesn't seem to be improving objectively, but they seem to be taking less risks. So they're having sex later, they're driving later, they're working later, they're using less drugs, there's less truancy, there's less crime... So I think we've decided there's not one explanation, but it's a really complex intersectional effect that is changing the way young people kind of move into adulthood. 
So this is interesting to me, Jeva, because it's really the opposite of the kind of culture that I found myself in in high school. The cool kids drank and partied, and the not cool kids were seen as not doing that. But makes sense. I feel like because of social media and awareness about mental illness and addiction, I can understand how kids would be much more aware of the harms of drinking and like really believe it. There's a lot of emphasis on health. I do wonder, though, is the same true with marijuana or are kids just smoking more instead of drinking? So I actually asked Amy about that and she told me that there's no evidence from her data of that actually happening, of people replacing alcohol with other recreational drugs. Aside from vaping, it seems that drug use overall amongst young people is going down. All right, so overall, young people are just using less mind-altering substances, whether it's booze or other drugs. Before we go on, I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a podcast I'd love to recommend. The We Society podcast, hosted by author and journalist Will Hutton and brought to you by the Academy of Social Sciences here in the UK. As the institutions and structures that have underpinned the world quiver before unprecedented pressures, Will explores with a unique range of experts the roots of what's going on and how best we can respond together. In the show's second season, the topical issues they're covering range from Russia's invasion of Ukraine with war studies expert Sir Lawrence Friedman to a conversation with public health specialist Professor Linda Bald about how a stressed National Health Service here in the UK can sustain Britain's health. It's a must-listen for all of us trying to get to grips with the magnitude of today's challenges, concerned about our society and looking for insight and hope. You can listen to The We Society now or wherever you get your podcasts. Gemma, you mentioned earlier that this decline in youth drinking is not happening all over the world. In fact, there are some places where young people are drinking a lot more than they used to. So if we're starting to understand what's causing these trends, what's going on in these other places and where are they? Yeah, it's really important part of the story because... While there is a conversation going on amongst researchers about this decline that's happening in high-income countries, in developing countries across Africa and Asia, the opposite is actually happening. And I called up somebody from Nigeria to find out a bit more. I grew up with that sense of seeing alcohol as something that only adult men should do. This is Emeka Dumbili. He's a lecturer at Namidi Ezekwe University in southeastern Nigeria. And he's also just finished a fellowship in Germany. I grew up in a village called Vlokitin in Delta State in the southern part of Nigeria, the Niger Delta. And in that uh, community, um, there's this rite of passage. Every young boy is um, expected to learn how to tap palm wine. Palm wine um, is served from palm tree. Um, there's this culture that if you, let's assume that I have a, an elder brother, and if I am able to do that, climb the palm tree and tap palm wine before him, I have the right over him when elders are talking because I've done something in quotes. I've done something men do that he hasn't done. The young boy, usually between 13 to 16 years old, brings the palm wine back to his father, who says a prayer and then proceeds to drink the alcohol. You will not actually drink um, because alcohol is not meant for young people. You, they, but they will drink and bless you. And it's like they've given you go ahead and prosper. 
in life. So every young boy was looking forward to doing that. Did you do that? Did you climb the tree? Yes, actually, I climbed the palm tree, but I didn't tap palm one because there are actually two things you can do. Either you cut the palm fruit, it's also a rite of passage. So you can either you can do the two or you do one of them. I didn't tap palm wine, but I did the other ones. So did you ever drink palm wine? Of course, growing up, I did. Um, you, you can't grow up in my village actually without drinking palm wine. Emeka told me about one time when he was about 15 or 16, when he came home one afternoon from secondary school. This was during the Hamatan, the dry season in Nigeria, where palm wine becomes sweeter. My uncle kept a keg of palm wine. I went then, I didn't tell anybody I hid and drank because it was very sweet. So I kept drinking and drinking. I didn't. So I got drunk and I slept till maybe 12 a.m., or 1 a.m. in the morning, and when I woke up, I was very hungry, but I couldn't ask for food because I know what I did it was wrong. So if I asked for food, I would be punished. So I didn't ask for food, and I slept again till the following morning. So I became very much ashamed of myself, and I didn't discuss it. Funnily enough, they knew what I did, but they didn't ask me. That was actually one of the things that made me to begin to dread alcohol. Oh, that this is very dangerous. It's not something that young people should actually do. When Emeka moved to the city to study at university, he found that young people were expected to drink. So it was a strange thing to me. It was this shock from what I experienced, where alcohol was dreaded by young people and what I'm seeing now. Since then, Emeka has focused his research on youth drinking in Nigeria. But as he looks on at researchers trying to understand why young people in Europe, North America and Australia are drinking less... He's actually finding the opposite is happening in Nigeria. In a 2018 report from the World Health Organization, Nigeria ranked first in Africa for per capita alcohol consumption and prevalence of heavy episodic drinking. Large-scale qualitative survey data in Nigeria is hard to come by, but Emeka says that his research interviewing young people shows how much more they're drinking. I've been doing this research since 2012, and... There are people that you will tell you, I don't drink alcohol. They're in the universities. I don't drink alcohol at all. But now, almost everybody will tell you, well, I drink small. I drink small amounts. And young people, one of the things that are coming up is that they are initiating consumption either before they come into the university as early as 13 years or even more, lower than that. And many people who didn't drink before they got to university began to drink immediately they come into the universities. And one of my participants in my current study I like his quote. He's a Muslim. He told me that I know it is wrong to drink, but I will drink and go and ask for forgiveness. Emeka has also been interviewing young people in their late teens and early 20s who aren't students at university, such as apprentices, plumbers, nurses. He's finding out that they're also drinking more than they used to. So why are countries like Nigeria bucking the trend of declining youth drinking being seen elsewhere in the world? Emeka pointed to the techniques being used by alcohol companies, combined with a lack of regulation governing the sale of alcohol. There is a nominal drinking age of 18 in Nigeria, but the alcohol industry is largely self-regulated. The country has none of the restrictions on selling or marketing alcohol, such as standard drink measurements, that are found in other parts of the world. And at the same time, the alcohol companies are putting a lot of effort into specific strategies to target their products at young people. We explored one recently, one we call strategies of using women, young women to promote beer. What they do is that they recruit 
young, in quotes, beautiful women, and these alcohol companies post them to different alcohol outlets. Alcohol companies are responsible for recruitment and training. And during the training, they tell them that you should expect all kinds of abuses. So this strategy... Evidence shows that it makes alcohol more available, more accessible, and more affordable because they do promotions. And if you buy three, you get one free. So it makes so people can drink more through that process. Another strategy, which Emeka says he's only seen in Nigeria so far, involves trucks acting as mobile marketing hubs. What they do is that they recruit young people, not just women now, young people. So they go on streets with DJs playing music uh, using truck. With the products also arranged with their brand, um, you know, uh, different kinds of T-shirts. And young people will be walking along the sides of the truck, promoting beer. It's normally done when a new product is um, introduced in the market. So there's a point they get to that they will ask people to volunteer to do drinking games. And if you are able to drink fast, you win maybe one crate. People clap for you and the journey continues to another part of the city. Strategies like these are paying off for alcohol companies, and many see Africa as a key area for future growth. Those strategies they developed in low resource settings and making people to drink more, they may decide to export it to high-income countries where the emphasis is now laid on declines in young people's drinking. Emeka says that alongside the marketing push by alcohol companies, there are other cultural and societal factors that are behind the rise in youth drinking. The young people he's talking to are saying that they're feeling more pressure to drink. Non-drinkers are seen as not fashionable currently, so if you want to conform, you have to drink alcohol. Another factor is the way drinking is portrayed on screen, both in Nigeria's homegrown film industry called Nollywood, as well as by America's Hollywood. Nollywood often portrays drinking intoxication in negative light, trying to teach you that, for example, you see someone who goes to club or whatever drinks, he comes back and beats his wife or becomes aggressive. So what when you see it, what it means that you are likely to say, oh, drinking is making people to act aggressively. But the opposite is the case in Hollywood films. American high school movies actually influencing them. In one research I did in South um, Eastern part of Nigeria, some participants were asking me if young people drink in these high school movies and why should they be constrained to drinking alcohol? Are they not young people? Are these ones not their counterparts? So what they're seeing in movies is aspirational drinking being translated to real life. Okay, so uh, America, as usual, exporting its culture to other places and maybe not for the better. But regardless, we've got this situation where across Africa and Asia, young people are drinking more. And in high-income countries like Europe and North America and Australia, young people are drinking less. So are these two trends related somehow? This seems to be maybe less than a coincidence. It's a good question. They could be related. And the reason could be to do with the marketing from the alcohol companies that Emeka was telling me about, right? So they realized that this peak drinking moment for young people was happening in the global north in the early 2000s. And so they've actually shifted their attention to developing countries, countries like Nigeria, as really big growth markets where they can make much bigger profits. So I guess the question I'm left with here is one of scale, right? A little bit more drinking is not necessarily so bad. But if like a binge drinking culture is really starting to develop in these places, that's going to be really bad. So what did the researchers say about the harm from this? Yeah, it's a really interesting question and one I wanted to put to them too. And, you know, it kind of depends on 
what's happening and where. So Emeka was adamant that the increase in youth drinking that he's been observing in Nigeria was a bad thing, totally. Not only can it put others in danger, for example, if you drink and drive, but it's bad for your health and that can also be costly in terms of medical bills. And he said that Nigeria was actually sitting on a keg of gunpowder because of this. Okay, so Nigeria, we're talking like big increases in alcohol consumption, obviously bad for all the reasons that alcohol is bad. Exactly. More drinking is clearly not good for you. But in places where youth drinking is in decline, things are actually a little bit less clear. And those researchers in those countries are pretty conflicted about what to feel about the trends that they're observing. And that's because they're seeing less drinking as a symptom of what could be a bigger problem for young people. And Amy Penney put it really well. I think public health researchers tend to assume that a decline in alcohol consumption can only be a positive thing, especially if then that flows on to lower drinking in adulthood. But I think if we looked at it from a broader sociological or cultural perspective, um, we can be more critical of that. So mental health problems seem to be increasing and concern and worry about the future. And this kind of idea that I can't let go and have a good time can be felt as a little bit depressing when you're talking to young people. I do feel sorry for them a little bit in that respect. I don't want to uh, assume that alcohol's an answer or a solution to that, but I think the factors broader than alcohol that are shaping their uh, attitudes to leisure time seems to be a bit concerning. Okay, that's it for this episode. Thank you to our colleagues, Liam Peterson in Australia, who worked with Amy Panay on an article about her research. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. I'd also like to thank Laura Fenton at the University of Sheffield in the UK and Tim Stockwell at the University of Victoria in Canada, who we also spoke to for this episode. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us podcast at theconversation.com. And if you like what we do, please do support our podcast and The Conversation more broadly. Just go to donate.theconversation.com. This episode of The Conversation Weekly was produced by Mend Marawani and Katie Flood and written by me. Sound design was by Eloise Stevens and our theme music is by Nita Searle. Stephen Kahn is our global executive editor. Alice Mason runs our social media and Soraya Nandi does our transcripts. I'm Gemma Ware, the show's executive producer. And I am Dan Reno. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>